Thanks for visiting studiolighting.net. You're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 21 of Light Source, the official podcast of studiolighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidd, exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockphoto.com. Today, we're going to have a little bit of an audio article where we're going to talk about raw processing and raw workflow. But before that, let's get into the news. We don't have too many news stories going on right now. It seems like it's a slow period. Yeah, it's a little dead out there. And there's some business about something coming out from Nikon that really didn't concern me all that much. (laughs) Well... That's because you just uh, dumped all your money on your newest camera. So for those of us who are constantly in the market for the next upgrade and shoot Nikon, might be interested to to know that Nikon is hyping a 10.2 megapixel DSLR, which looks like it might fall in between the, the D70 and the D200, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I was talking with my friend who has a D200, and he said that it um, he thinks it's going to probably have the the same sensor that his D two hundred has in it, so it'll be interesting to see where this one's price pointed at. Yeah, and it's also interesting that uh, today they released some photos, if they're real, and it it's uh, it sort of shows pretty obviously that it takes SD cards, so it's it seems like they're targeting it to photo enthusiasts rather than pros. I don't think it's going to be competing with the D two hundred. It's kind of in there in the middle somewhere, so. I, maybe to compete with the Sony Alpha, which is a 10 megapixel under a thousand. That's my kind of uh, take on it. A lot of the things that I've been hearing about the teasers is is to hopefully you know persuade some people that might be leaning towards the Sony Alpha. You know, if they're already in the Nikon camp or wanting to go in the Nikon camp, um, you know, maybe get them to say, well, maybe I'll hold off and not jump towards Sony since Nikon's just going to be coming out with it right around the corner. Absolutely. Smart marketing on their part. Yeah, it is. And they have, speaking of smart marketing, they have kind of a cool countdown page, which I don't think the countdown will be over by the time this show airs. So <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. You can kind of watch the you know this sort of countdown with lightning and thunder that they have on their website. It's so, all about the hype. It's all about the hype. So speaking of hype. Yes. Uh, uh, Adobe Lightroom for Windows was released. Did you get a chance to download it? Yeah, I think I've opened it three times. <laughs> <laughs> My excitement was like, yes, and I could care less now. <laughs> <laughs> but evidently a lot of people didn't care less because I think that in five days they had over 100,000 downloads of the product. That is pretty wild. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of people very anxious to play with it. It's curious. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later as we talk about some of the raw processing applications that we've used. But, um, you know, you and I sort of have a different perspective on it, which is cool. Yeah. Well, we should probably get into talking about digital workflow and raw processing. Don't you have any quirky news for us? I don't have any. Well, there was some quirky news that was out there, uh, that, and that is my job on the show, it seems. <laughs> we had talked about a couple episodes ago uh, about the largest, I believe this was your story, Bill, the largest film negative ever. And we were talking about it. I found the camera truck, and I was all excited about that. And then you went and one up to me with it and said that someone had taken an airplane hanger and turned it into the world's largest pinhole camera. Well, they just recently developed the photo, the first photo from it, haven't they? 
I think so. I think I read something about that this morning. I didn't see the image, which I was hoping to see the image, but I guess that'll come later. But they had this huge sheet, which they soaked. Uh, well, first they exposed it, you know, for a long time. I think it took five hours or something. And then they just poured like 600 gallons of developer on the sheet with uh, with garden hoses to get the image to, to be set. So that's wild. <laughs> Going for a Guinness record. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they what they get from it. Of course, they'll be able to take that same photo over and over and over again because it's not like they can move the building. <laughs> that's right. Well, the one team member joked that it was a disposable camera because I guess the the hanger that they used is set for demolition like within the next year. <laughs> so it's funny. It's a one-time use point and shoot <laughs> building camera. You won't see those in your drugstore anytime soon, I don't think. No, definitely not. Well, you can buy a drugstore and turn it into one. There you go. Well, before we move totally out, out of uh, lighting news, we do have a studiolighting.net announcement to make. As all of you know, We've been hosting our very first portrait photo contest in cooperation with our friends at ShootSmarter.com who have offered some great prizes. And that contest officially ended on July 15th. So thank you to everybody who participated. And we're excited to announce the winners tonight. Ed, do you have the the first, second, and third place guys there lined up? Uh, Yes, I do have them here, Bill. These were voted on by the staff at ShootSmarter.com and Christopher Gray. So thank you guys for taking the time to uh, to help us with our contest. I, I loved looking at all these the the people that submitted, Bill. Yeah, me too. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I hope we're able to do it again. Absolutely. Our third place person in the contest who picks up the new Digital Portrait Lighting 3 with Christopher Gray from ShootSmarter.com. They get that on DVD. And that goes to C. Myers, uh, M-A-I-E-R-S, who was submitted to us by email. A lovely shot of a baby boy. And uh, we'll put all of these um, with some of the comments from Christopher Gray on the uh, studiolighting.net contest page so you can check out the winning images and the comments that were left about them. Uh, Number two is going to pick up the digital portrait lighting three plus digital exposure control DVDs from shootsmarter.com. And that winner is Flickr user Wilson Lowe for his photo 4-in-1, a lovely photo of a lady outside. And our grand prize winner, who wins the full catalog of digital photo instructional DVDs from ShootSmarter.com. And this was one of my favorite images, too. If I, w- if I had been voting, this is one that I would have, I think it was in my top three that I had voted for. It's uh, Alejandro... Serdana. I apologize if I butchered the name, uh, but it's a shot of a woman looking off to the right with some beautiful soft lighting on the face. It's a really nice emotion in her face and good lighting, so I'll actually be interested to see what Christopher Gray said about that. Like you said, we'll have all that information on studiolighting.net, and we want to offer a big congratulations to all of you folks and encourage all of you who didn't win to uh, stay tuned for more contests. I've been reading a lot of different polls, and it's kind of interesting taking our own informal poll of the people that we've had on our show about whether they shoot it in the RAW format or JPEG format. There have been a number of pros that we've had on the show that have said that they shoot in JPEG. Right. Yeah, there have been. And a bunch of people who, you know, do a lot of post-processing and use RAW as well. There's an article, actually a poll, in the recent issue, I guess I should say the August 2006 edition of Popular Photography and Imaging. They have an article called Raw versus JPEG, and I really like this because it adds some points to kind of my own argument that I've had for the topic. But what really jumped out at me is they have a poll on here. It says, 
uh, when shooting digital photos, I use RAW, the RAW file format, and then um, their options are, uh, what is a RAW file format? And that was 21% of the people. Wow. And rarely was 36% of the people. And 20% of the time or less is 11% of the people, which is, you know, that's making up a large portion of the findings out of it. And then up to 50% of the time is 9%, and 90% of the time or more is 24%. So only 35% of the people in this study are using raw format on a regular basis. Wow. Which is sad, I think. Yeah, it, it kind of is. I mean, considering the advantages and, and things like that to the format, which is kind of why we wanted to have a little bit of an audio article. We realize this isn't directly related to studio lighting, but certainly has impact on studio workflow. Uh, certainly, it factors heavily in your final product. So, well, first of all, maybe we should just sort of expand a little bit on what we mean by RAW. But what What is RAW? Sure. Well, um, RAW is a file format, and it's essentially the same thing, or similar to a JPEG. It's, a, it's the way that a file is saved, and RAW is saved out of the camera. And essentially, it is the RAW sensor data. It's not processed by the internal processor of the camera. An example that I got from Russell Brown at the Photoshop World Expo in Vegas last year was he compared the RAW format to a film negative and a JPEG to a film print. The JPEG is what you give to somebody, like the print. The print is what you give to somebody. It's the final delivery vehicle of that, that image. And where the RAW is like your negative. You have a lot more options in the darkroom when you're developing a negative. You can print it a little heavier. You can print it a little lighter. And you can adjust that where if you have the print, you don't really have as much steps that you can do with it. You can do some things where you try and make like a film dupe of it and then try to reprocess that. But you get a higher degradation of your image than you would if you started at the original format. Right. And there are some things about exposure itself that could really improve your images, like you said at the beginning, Ed. And one of those things is uh, the whole notion of having the exposure latitude. And for people who are coming from film to digital, probably are very painfully aware that you just don't have the exposure latitude in digital capture that you do in film. I think I've heard it compared to where if you shot with film negatives uh, in a studio, a lot of times you could be pretty loose with the exposure, uh, fairly loose anyway, and you could recover that image in the processing and post-processing and development stage. Whereas with, with digital, if you for example, overexpose just a little bit and blow out some highlights on a forehead or something like that, it's impossible almost to recover that without reconstructing it. And you really don't want to be in that situation, especially in a professional shoot. One of the things that the raw image format does for you, it doesn't really buy you real exposure latitude in terms of stops. But when you're talking about a difference of color depth, the raw image is a 16-bit image, and the JPEG file format only can handle 8 bits of data uh, regarding color. So when you talk about numbers of colors and the range of colors, the raw image format allows you a, quote, latitude that the JPEG file doesn't. So if you do get close to messing up that image with the exposure, and you bring that into Photoshop, for example, the raw being a 16-bit image has a little more play in it because there's more information about that color there than there would have been in a JPEG file. We've probably glazed a lot of people's eyes over with a lot of this already, but it's not as difficult as it sounds. There is a lot of technical aspects about it, 
But luckily, there's a lot of software applications out here that, that are available to us that make this easier for us. Before we go into software, let's talk about how uh, RAW can have non-destructive editing. You can save that one RAW image and go back to your, your negative analogy and say you have that in your darkroom and you want to process it differently each time. You can do that and bring up the same RAW image and change the settings and you haven't destroyed that original. Like what I sometimes do is I'll just save the NEF, I'll save the raw file and I'll go in and I'll, I'll maybe pump the saturation and play with the uh, tonal curve and export that as my JPEG. But then next time, maybe I want to come in and desaturate that. I still have that original raw file with all the same data that was out of the camera the first time. I can go back to the original and start all over and you can have that non-destructive editing going on. I know like with Nikon Capture, you can actually save that stuff, different settings all in the same RAW file and it goes with it if you send it to someone else. Sounds like it's pretty similar to what Photoshop does with the XMP data where you can save that and you can save a DNG file which compacts all of that information together into kind of like a little job jacket. It saves all your settings along with, uh, along with the RAW file and a JPEG of it as well. Kind of along those same lines that you were saying about, something else that I use sometimes is I'll open my file, I'll process it, and maybe I'll hit it with um, something that gives me a nice high contrast. Maybe it's in the eyes or maybe it's in the hair or something like that. I'll make a copy of that file, close it, reopen that same raw file again, reprocess it a different way. Maybe it's with slightly desaturated color. Copy that into the other file that I had, close that again, open it, process it again another way, and then layer that back into that same document where I've compiled all of them. So now I have a Photoshop document that has three layers, the exact same image processed three different ways. And then I can mask the layers and bring certain areas of those images more into the foreground. Like maybe the, I like the way that I process the eyes better on another one. Well, I can mask that out and pull those eyes up. And it's an interesting way of blending technique between those. And you're doing it all non-destructively because you're on layers, you're masking, and you've done it from the original raw file. And you can always go back to that raw file and process it yet a fourth way for a totally different image. So um, I guess the bottom line is the flexibility that you can gain by using the raw image format. And in, particularly in a professional or even a semi-professional studio environment, there's some real benefit there. Um, one thing it does do is it does take you a little bit longer to get to a JPEG that would be handed off to your client or a friend or family member or things like that. But through some of the software that we're going to talk about, a lot of these do offer batched processing tools, which allow you to grab an entire session's worth of images and say, you can go through and change your settings for them, apply those settings to the file, and then say, all right, take all of these and make these images a JPEG. Right. And then, you know, go get yourself a sandwich or a drink or whatever, and then come back, and hopefully they're done by then. Another point to mention there is probably that if you're a location shooter or something like that, or even if you're the type of shooter that needs prints on the spot, uh, a lot of the modern DSLRs will also store RAW and JPEG images at the same time. Sometimes the JPEG image is a little lower quality than the actual RAW image would be, or if you were shooting in the full JPEG fine mode. But that's still an option that you would have actually two images stored with the same exposure 
And if you were in a gym and or you wanted to give a CD of proofs to someone on the spot, you could still do that. And I think I've even seen some cameras that are smart enough that have du uh, dual ports. I'm not sure if the, the D2X is this way, but I think the Canon 1DS Mark II, and typically these are the cameras that are 5000 or $8,000, um, that you can stick two different cards in them and write the RAW file to one card and JPEGs to another. Nice. So you you would have your your backup in you would be able to do in camera backups and if you're say like you're at a wedding or whatever you, well you could take those JPEG files out, hand them to a processor or someone that's sitting there working like a printing station right. and print those those JPEGs off quick right there at a wedding or a location or event or something like that and then you go back to your studio and use the raw images to do your uh, creative images and your photo album for example exactly someone wants something that's a little bit more touched up or something like that yeah so you know your, your premium products that's right so those are some of the advantages to the raw format and hopefully we gave just like a general overview of the raw of raw format itself but we also wanted to talk about as a part of this audio article some of the software applications that Ed and I have used just from our perspective. Now, one of the things about raw processors and raw software is, you know, everybody's a little different and your style is different and your workflow is different. So our recommendation, I guess, is, is just to download some trial versions of these and, and try them for yourself because there's a great thread on our Flickr group talking about uh, workflow. And in there, you can see all the different types of, of photographers and how their workflow varies. So it really is something that you have to sort of get a feel for on your own. But we thought it would be interesting to at least talk about our experience with some of this stuff. Uh, certainly. And um, probably at the, uh, I guess we're starting at the top of the list, would be looking inside of the box that came with your camera. Right. Um I know in terms of the Canons, I don't think it was the way with your, your D50. Is that correct? Well, there um, is. Did, did it come bundled with software? Yes. It comes with like Nikon RAW viewer or something like that. Oh, okay. So it has, it's a RAW viewer and converter? Yeah, you can save uh, out the JPEG from it. Okay. And that's exactly the same way that Canon is. It, it ships with a, a package called Digital Photo Professional, which um, it reads some of the camera data. You have basic curve adjustments and things like that. One advantage if you're shooting with a 5D, and Canon has a an option in there called Picture Styles, which allows you to do really nice black and white sepia tones and things like that that seem like they have a really good a good saturation to them. I was reading Chris, uh, Christopher Gray's blog from ShootSmarter.com, and he was saying that the Picture Styles in the Canon 5D actually look better than converted black and white images in Photoshop. Oh, wow. But it requires the Canon software to process that image because it's proprietary and, and none of the third-party raw processors can understand that. Which is the same thing with the Nikon DSLRs. If there's certain things about the raw format that, well, one advantage to using the software that comes with your camera, like you mentioned, is also that a lot of them have the ability to make all the camera settings, like the things that would be on the buttons for your camera, after the fact. So let's say you wanted to play with the sharpening that's in your camera or the color saturation controls, but you didn't want to necessarily do that in your JPEG. A lot of times the raw software that comes with your camera allows you to take the raw image and then apply those settings in post-processing. And maybe that'll help you, you know, set up your camera in the future or you can play with those options and see how it would change your image. And it's exactly what it would have been if you would have done it in camera. You can get an idea of your camera settings on a calibrated monitor um, where you can actually see histograms and see how it's going to look. Right. Because I, I don't know how many people that we've had on our show that have said that LCD on the back 
of the camera is great for composition, but that's about it. So that's another just sort of advantage to playing around with the software that comes with the camera. But what else, what, like what have you used in terms of third-party applications? Well, I I pretty much stick with the um, what I consider the old standby, and that's uh, Photoshop Adobe Camera Raw. I've been using it since they came out with it. I, I like the settings that they have, and probably the biggest thing that I like about Adobe Camera Raw is that it integrates very easily into the rest of my workflow. I use Bridge to select my images that I want to process or do something with and I can select multiple ones and say, send these images out to a JPEG image that's 800 by 600 and put my watermark on it. Right. It runs through that, it takes care of it, and it does a really decent job of the processing. I haven't had any complaints with it. And then that would work if you have Adobe Photoshop CS or CS2. Uh, that's correct. So it comes with both of those applications. So I think you're going to find that's a very popular choice of, of raw converters. And they, am I correct to say that they accept most of the camera formats? Yeah. Now, to get into some of the newer camera formats, uh, you're probably going to be required to have CS2 because you're going to need the latest update to Adobe Camera Raw. Right, which we, we always try to mention those updates. They're constantly happening as the new models come out. What else have you used? Well, uh, I have used um, Pixmentech uh, makes a product called Raw Shooter. Well, it was called Raw Shooter Essentials, but Adobe recently purchased the technology from it and is including it into Lightroom. But they're still going to keep the Raw Shooter package out there, right, for and a while? As far as I know, it's going to be it's still going to be out there. It's a little hard to say. I think we mentioned on a previous show that um, I've heard conflicting reports as to what's going to happen to it. Now that's the, currently the only third-party raw converter that's free. That's correct. But there are some, it, they go on all sorts of scales. I mean, there's uh, Pixman Tech offers their free one. They also have a premium edition. And then there are a number of different ones out there. Like I've heard people that mention they like Breeze Browser Pro or Photo Mechanic. And I even believe that in ACDC Pro, there is a raw component that I have had mixed results with. To be fair to ACDC, I have not played with it all that much. I tried it a couple times, got some pretty wacky results, and decided to go right back to Photoshop. Right. So, in, in fairness to them, I have not used it very thorough, but um, my my initial findings weren't that great with it. And now, you did recently try the Adobe Lightroom trial, or the beta version yes, of I, that. I did use the, the Windows beta, and... Um, one of the members of our Flickr group had sent me a, a site mail through Flickr and asked me what my thoughts of it were. He had downloaded it at the same time, and it's nice. It's it's pretty cool. My I'm having some issues with memory with the program. Uh, it seems like it doesn't like to get through my pictures folder. Okay. It crashed when it was trying to load all the images through, and it seemed like it took a full evening for it to go through and, and load them all into the program. Right. Well, actually, two evenings. Oh, so you were loading all your images at once? Well, it's I selected where my library was, and at that point it said, okay, I'm going to get thumbnails. Wow. And it, it took forever, and then it crashed, and I did get to process a couple images, and they're really nice. My biggest problem is I use... Currently, I'm using Bridge and iView Media Pro for uh, selecting my images or, or deciding what images I want to work with. And there's no really good way for me to go from those applications into Lightroom to process an image. Okay. So I'm wondering if Lightroom is going to be one of those all-or-nothing applications where you're using it for your digital asset management or you're kind of like a, all right, here's my folder of images that I just shot and I need to work with them start to finish. Yeah, it's possible. 
my experience is a little different because I didn't have a large library on the hard drive that I installed it. I just pulled a handful in at a time, and then each time I have a session, I pull in a few more. I keep all my session images in different folders, which maybe would help a little bit on that end of it. But it was one of the first third-party raw processing applications that I actually used. So I was pretty excited about it just because of the flexibility that it added. I thought that it did a great job in sharpening the Nikon images that I have and just some of the tonal adjustments that I could make, I was pretty impressed with. But a lot of those things are pretty standard. It's just that they just captured some of the, the typical workflow sort of features that you would expect to see in any of these software applications. But it's it's still available as a, as a trial download, so I would say it's worth anybody getting a, a crack at it for themselves. And actually, most of the, the applications that we're talking about on this episode do have free versions available for trial basis to get an idea of what you think of it before you purchase it to make sure it fits into your workflow well. Right, and that's the way to go. Speaking of downloads, I'm not sure how much longer it's going to, to be, but um, you can get the newest version of Nikon Capture, which Nikon has the... The, the application that comes with the camera, which is pretty limited in its feature set. The nice thing about Canon, if you have Canon DSLRs, you get the full-featured RAW converter, uh, where Nikon does not bundle their RAW software with the camera, just a, a limited version. Uh, if you want to go and pay $100, or I think the new version is a little more than that, uh, you can get Nikon Capture, which the latest version is called Nikon Capture NX. And... Right now they were they have an open trial where you can download the software and check it out. So I did that and I've been using it for a number of days and I have to say that there are some really slick features uh, in that application. They purchased some technology from another company which allowed them to integrate some really wild features in terms of color adjustments and stuff like that. I think the, the coolest thing that I enjoyed playing with was the color point selection tool which allows you to pick a point in your image and it launches these three little slider bars that you can use to adjust like the surrounding color and the tone of it and the contrast and stuff like that. And it really works well. Like you can pick the sky behind a person and adjust the intensity of the blue or the color of the blue. And it masks perfectly with whatever else is in the image. It, it's really slick. So stuff like that. Another advantage to some of these uh, raw processors is the sharpening can happen before the JPEG is made. So they built some good sharpening tools in there as well. And one thing that we should probably mention at this point is people might be thinking to themselves, well, you know, if one of these program, if you know, if one of these applications can convert a raw program, well, what are the differences? And I have noticed through all of these different tools that I've, you know, had the opportunity to work with that the output is different. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes drastically. What comes out of Photoshop is different than what comes out of Pixman Tech Raw Shooter. Absolutely. It's different than what comes out of Capture One or um, Adobe or ACDC Pro. It, it is important to check the applications out and find the one that works the best for you. It, just like cameras, everyone has a different preference. You know, I'm, an, I'm a Canon guy. You're an Nikon I almost said I'm a Nikon guy. <laughs> I'm a Canon guy. And you're the Nikon guy. I'm the Nikon guy. But, you're the Nikon guy. Don't confuse me. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, though. Yeah, everyone does have a preference with it. And actually, probably one thing that I should caution some people with is the latitude of the tools. I have noticed with Adobe Camera Raw Processor, you can move the sliders pretty good in that application, and it makes good adjustments. And I kind of 
I tend to consider uh, Adobe Camera Raw almost like a jeweler's screwdriver. <laughs> okay. it, it makes really nice adjustments. It's very easy to make them. Some of the things that I've noticed with a program such as like Raw Shooter, which is a great program, and it has a huge amount of adjustability. If you move those sliders pretty far, you turn that jeweler's screwdriver into a sledgehammer. Right. And and you can really um you can really screw up an image. Sure can. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's pretty much the case with a lot of these. Um you push things a little too far, you'll you'll see it right away, hopefully. <laughs> but uh it's it's definitely something that you can go too far with. Yeah, and I think some of the programs will let you go too far in one way or another. So it's and this is a good point I love to make with raw files. And you hear a lot of people say this on forums or in discussion with people that you know. You know, they'll say, "Well, I love to shoot raw because, yeah, you know, I don't have to think about the JPEG or I don't have to think about the ISO. I don't have to think about the white balance. You know, I I don't really you know the exposure has to be close, but you know I can deal with all that later, which is true to a point, but it makes it harder than, and it doesn't make as good of an image." If you get your exposure right in the camera, if you get your white balance right inside the camera, yeah. So I mean, it's always best to get it as as best you can in camera, and think of that raw processing tool as as a refinement, as a way to get the style out of the photo and tweak it more to um, finished photograph and less like a snapshot. I think that's a really important point to make here. Uh, raw shooting is not an excuse for sloppy photography and you're going to benefit if you take the time to get the you know get the exposure and things correct in camera even if you are in raw mode just like you said because uh there's no excuse for just not getting a good image in the first place if anybody has checked out like the shootsmarter.com material they're real big on getting that exposure you know dead on with digital capture because it is really important and no matter what mode your camera's in you're going to see a better image, just like you said. And it's probably more important. And when you bring up the Shoot Smarter reference, uh, one of the things that was mentioned in one of the videos is that it's even more important with digital to get the proper exposure at the time of the shoot. Um, Because of the contrast of digital, it can have a tendency to to fall into the overexposed or underexposed category very quickly in either the highlights or the shadows. And it would be, it's no fun at all to do a whole session and realize that you had bad exposure settings. And, you know, that's just bad. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> Me too. And, and speaking from experience, you don't want to do that. And and there's, you know, certainly rock can help a little bit, but not, not if you've blown out all of your images in a whole sitting. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, you can refine it, but you can't create what's not there. And I guess since we're, to just to be fair and to talk about maybe... uh at least one disadvantage of the raw format and they have to be aware of one thing like we mentioned is is the processing speed if somebody needs the images right away you know just just you you have to do a post-processing on the image whereas with jpeg you could literally take your card out and put it a printer and have an image but another consideration we should probably mention is that storage needs are much higher (laughs) Uh, as, as ed is painfully aware of recently with your bigger sensor um, yeah, and I'm and I'm actually shooting eight gigabyte cards. And the other day I was on a shoot, and I switched it back to JPEG because I was running out of space. Yeah, and that's I mean that's a very real consideration. Even though you can get a 300 gigabyte hard drive now, reasonably priced, uh, 
that's going to fill up pretty quick if you're shooting always in RAW. And just to give an example, I have a 6 megapixel sensor. My JPEG images are 2.5 megabytes. My RAW images are about 7 megabytes. So there's a lot more information in that file, and as a result, the file sizes are just much, much bigger. So reduces the capacity of your cards and makes uh, your backup solutions and everything like that more complex and more expensive. So <laughs> <laughs> something to keep in mind. As I am finding out. <laughs> right. And you're talking about file size. The Canon 5D that I'm shooting with, when I'm shooting RAW, my raw files are about 12 to 14 megabytes, Ouch. which is pretty large. That is. Um, and I've been, thanks to like the, the DAM book, um, I've been following a lot of that procedure for archiving my work now. So when I'm saving my files out, I'm saving them into a DNG format, which embeds the raw file within it. So my DNG files are now 22 megabytes oh. per image. Amazing. So I'm looking at hard drive storage. Absolutely. Yeah, that becomes a consideration pretty quickly. So just something to keep in mind. And I guess, uh, to be fair, there are other raw processing applications that we didn't get a chance to mention uh, in this article, particularly some of the more expensive ones, which I don't have experience with, but a lot of the photographers that we interviewed have mentioned, like Capture One by the folks that make the Phase One backs uh, for professional studio environments, or I have used it. That's a really nice, it is a really nice raw program. And I've gotten some really nice results from it. They do have a cheaper product. And how, how much is that? It's uh, 99 euros. Okay, so that's not too bad. It's reasonably priced. But there's another one that's really popular. We just, Ed and I, don't have experience with it. So we thought we'd do something a little different and invite a listener who we know from the Flickr Light Source group has experience with it, and that's Apple Aperture. So we'll go right now to a little segment we recorded with uh, Mariano Friganal. Many of you guys might recognize him as the guy that has the, the collar of his shirt pulled up over his nose and his little avatar. Sounds good. So we'll just take a quick break in the audio. It'll sound a little different. We're going to grab a conference call with Mariano as he gives his impression of uh, Apple Aperture and how he works it into his, his, uh, his workflow. We have on the line with us one of our listeners... Mariano, uh, I'm going to butcher your last name, Frigino, our first listener guest uh, to join us. And uh, I love your work, Mariano, and uh, thank you for coming in and agreeing to talk with us a little bit about uh, Aperture. Hey, the pleasure's all mine. So what are, what's your impression of Aperture in general as a, as a raw processing tool and just in general user ability and stuff like that? Well, in general, I think it's pretty good. You know, um, the first... Uh, program that I use is actually Lightroom. The, I got it when it's like first beta, and it, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's it was only out for Mac, and now it's out for PC users too. But so actually, the Mac users actually got to experience one and two, and it was really kind of um, really sketchy. But I decided to get um, Aperture two because I found something lacking with. Uh, Lightroom. Well, what it was lacking is basically with the the management part of it. Okay. So I yeah I think that's what uh, Aperture excels at, and that's what I like about it. But the way I think of it is well I use I I photo a lot. That's what I used to use before. And to me, Aperture was just like I photo on crack. You know, <laughs> it was just basically it was just they had a lot more tools. That, but uh, Aperture is. It's, to me, there's still something lacking, you know, um, mostly with the color management and all. So I tend to go back. I would 
manage all the files with Aperture, and then I would, when I get all my selects, go go into Lightroom, yeah, and then do all my color corrections there because I'm used to Photoshop, and which I'm sure like 99% of the people out there are, you know. So you enjoy Aperture for like the uh, the loop tool and the way that you can spread things around on the on the desk and stuff like that as you choose your images for batch processing. Yeah, definitely. It's this very powerful. Aperture is very powerful in that aspect. When I first got it, it was you know the the minimum requirement is like two gigs of RAM, for that, right. which is like which is nuts, you know. But when I the first time I saw it was at uh, their website, the Mac site, and I saw you know all these uh, demos for it, and I was like, I gotta get that because Photoshop ain't cutting it, and Lightroom keeps crashing on me, beta one and two. So I got that, and that's what I used for like a month. I, I really liked it, except it's just really not that good at as as good as as Lightroom on the other part of it, where when you tend to want Photoshop. So it's more of a workflow tool. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's cool. If, would you buy it again if you had the chance? I mean, having just in terms of your impressions of it, looking back. Yeah, I would actually. I, both programs are still kind of like they're still trying to figure it out. You know, I think they both complement each other. And I I saw another user on a at the light source Flickr forums that does the same kind of thing where they wish that some parts of a Lightroom were in Aperture, vice versa. So Cool. Well, that's cool, man. We appreciate you taking the time to share your impressions of that. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mariano, for that. That was a great couple of points that, that you guys were making about how it works, how both tools are good. And it might be that that's the case with a lot of these different tools. You might find more than one of them is uh, useful for you know different product applications or different shots or shoots that you get involved with. So again, I think we just need to stress testing them all out and downloading a bunch of trials and, and watching demos and stuff like that to see what you can come up with. We promised that we would try to answer some of your questions on the podcast or the forum. And, uh, we have a list of questions here that we're going to see if we can get over a couple of them. Uh, we have a question here from Ryan. It says, I love the site and the podcast. I'm getting ready to purchase my first studio lighting kit. I think I'm going to get an Alien B beginner kit. Good choice. Is it necessary for me to also be looking for into flash meters? Do I need a meter for just one light, or should I wait until I have multiple lights? Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I'm going to have to say that when you get into strobe photography, that a light meter comes very important, even if you have a single light. Now, we talked to strobist on our last episode, and we asked him this question in a sense, and he said that he doesn't use a whole lot of his light meter on location that much anymore. But he said the reason for that was because he was able to see uh, the results of his photography on the back of his camera. And that is certainly something that you could do to a certain degree, I think. But in the studio setting... There's a lot of advantages to having a light meter in order to get that accurate exposure that we talked about. And one of the reasons that you need that meter at all is because the meter inside of your camera can't capture a strobe of light. The light's just not there for long enough for you to get a meter reading from a reflected meter, which is the kind of meter that's in your camera. What a light meter does for you is it waits for that burst of light and then it tells you how much light hit the meter when that light was fired. So the lights are gone, but you can still see what the exposure setting needs to be. And that becomes very important when you're trying to nail that perfect exposure 
um, because of the this short latitude of digital imaging. So if you are shooting digital, Ryan, I would highly recommend that you grab a light meter and you start to learn how to use it, even if you're lose, using one light. Another reason is that even if you're going to shoot with one light, there's a good chance that you're going to start introducing other light sources in the forms of reflectors or whatever, uh, bouncing light in to the shadows. And if you want to do anything with light ratios, you're going to need a meter to sort of figure that out. Uh, instead of just winging it, it is a good idea to, to check out a meter. And they're not that terribly expensive. So if you're going to make an investment into studio lights, you might as well go ahead and make the investment on a good meter as well. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, I pretty much agree. Um, I would probably say it's it's not essential, but it's very important. Um, and if you want to listen to more about light meters, you can check out our episode number five where Bill and I went on uh, pretty much a great length about the different types of meters that you can get, you know, which one you would want to, what type you would want to be looking at for different types of uh types of work because there are a bunch of different settings some of them come with pocket wizard technology built into them and some of them yeah they offer spot metering for when you're on location and things like that so um, check out episode five it's in our back episodes that's there to listen to as well thanks for the question Uh, another quick question that i that i'd like here is uh janice wrote or janice wrote uh how do i light a studio for a black on black portrait Ah. or black on black photo and I, I like this because this is a very interesting challenge to, to pull off because black by its nature absorbs light. So you, you do need a, a good bit of it actually for, for photographing in black because you don't have a lot that's reflected back to you. When we were talking about this question earlier, Bill, uh, you may, you brought up the really good point of getting a lot of separation. One is you probably want a, a decent amount of distance from your subject to the background. So a lot of your light is not falling on that background and your your black background can actually fall black. Right. But you would need that light to help define the shape of your subject, assuming your subject is black, whether it's black clothing or an African-American person or someone that's just dark complected. You're going to need to use that light to kind of light a halo around that person or do something that's going to help define that person's shape against the background. Right, and that could be in the form of side lighting, or you might want to try uh, a hair light and spill some of it on the shoulders, something to sort of make that outline pop. And if you are getting light spill from your main light or any of your fill lights on a background, or you don't have enough room in your studio to get the subject far enough away from the background to keep it dark, uh, you might want to consider using scrims or just black foam core or black material to block the light from hitting the background once it hits the subject. Just basically something to flag it off so that way it's not hitting it. Right. And we have one last question that we're going to go over in this episode. And um, I picked this one because it's an easy one that we could refer someone back to another one of our shows. Okay. Uh, I'll paraphrase this question here by Eric Schmidt. Basically, he was asking about lenses. And he said, is there a standard lens and shooting distance that is preferred for single object types of shots and things like that? Well, when you're shooting an object type of shot, you're probably going to be wanting to look at like some sort of a macro lens and allow you to get in close. He wants to know if it's if it's better to use a macro lens or a zoom lens. Well, you can use both of them. They do make uh, lenses that are zoom lenses that do have macro capability. If you want a, a zoom lens, what I suggest looking at is the minimum focus distance on the lens. And it's I always suggest going to a photo store and actually testing out the lens if you have the opportunity to do so. If not, try and read those minimum focus distance on the specs 
I think my uh, 70 to 200 zoom, I can, I think the focus, closest it focuses is like four feet away, which sounds like a lot. Um, but at that distance, you can get a fairly decent macro out of it or an object type shot. Probably what I would suggest as a bigger issue is how that lens is going to react in terms of how it shapes your image. And we talked about this on episode six, where we discussed lighting for portraits and how using that same cropping of a shot with a wide angle lens versus a medium telephoto versus a long telephoto, how the farther you get away from that subject with a longer reach lens will tend to flatten out the shape of your whatever your subject is that you're shooting. And when you're getting in tight to get that same cropping with a wide angle lens, it tends to to stretch out your subject a little bit. So whatever you're shooting, you need to decide how it would be best represented. If you're shooting people, typically that's like the 100 millimeter range. Objects, well, it's going to be up to you and the type of feel that you want to get with it. So check out episode six for some more information on that. And I believe that's all we have for this episode, Bill. I think you're right. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes at studiolighting.net for the things that we talked about on today's show. And there you can also find links about our photography and keep up with the stuff that we've been shooting. And don't forget, you can send us feedback or questions about the show to studiolighting at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer those questions on the show or in the lighting questions section on studiolighting.net. You can also get feedback on your photography in our Flickr group, which is at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source. Till next time. Take care.